Father in heaven, in one sense, these are quite complicated verses, not simply um, to understand, but complicated because we know something of who we are and what we're still like and of the way in which we struggle to apply these truths. And so we pray this morning that you wouldn't just help us to understand these verses better, although we do pray that, but we pray more than that, by your spirit, you would help us to live them. Help us to increasingly be the people you are changing us into. Help us to to care about these things because we care about you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were around last Sunday morning, we had a bit of a history lesson um, for some of our time together. We were thinking about 157 years ago in the U.S., Um, and something called the Emancipation Proclamation, um, which, at least in the southern states, was put into effect by Lincoln, and it meant millions of African-American slaves essentially were were granted freedom. On the stroke of midnight, January the 1st, 1863, everything changed. There were prayers, there were shouts, there were songs of joy. They were now men and women rather than goods. They were now people rather than possessions. But the fascinating thing, actually, was what happened next. Maybe we shouldn't be surprised with this, but many people struggled with their newfound freedom. They struggled with the new status that had been bestowed upon them. For some, they were all at sea. In fact, for some, they preferred to go back to old ways. They preferred to go back to their old lives, their old ways of doing things, their old masters, even. They'd been granted freedom, but for some, they preferred to go back. Which is kind of where Paul goes in these next few verses in Romans 8. He helps us begin to deal with that awful tendency that so often plagues us as believers. It's it's to forget who we are. It's to have this new reality bestowed upon us, but then to choose not to live in the light of it. We said last week, and we've said a number of times already this morning, um, that we are now no longer condemned because Jesus has died. Everything has changed. God's righteous anger went on him rather than his people. His holiness has been satisfied. And so his death in our place means, we said, we're not condemned. Indeed, our penalty has been removed, if you were here, and our purpose has been restored We can be friends with God, we can live for him in righteousness, we can increasingly be the people he made us to be. We're being transformed into the likeness of Christ. The effects of his death starts now. It's not the the get-out-of-jail-free card that only kicks into effect when you go to jail playing Monopoly, but actually it's something that begins now. Not just for when our heart stops, stops beating. And yet we said, despite that, all of us, I suspect, will know something of that dissatisfaction with who we are as Christians. I want to be kinder in the way that I think, but again and again and again, I I stumble back into old ways of thinking where I'm perhaps judgmental or criticizing people internally. I'm not the person I ought to be now in Christ. I, I want to be more patient, but still too easily my children wind me up. My fuse is too short. I want to be more generous But I struggle because things and money and stuff have this hold on me and I can't let go and I I bow down to them rather than to him. I trust them rather than him. We're not who we want to be, I take it. 
And that means, in our world more generally, and indeed you'll find in Christian bookshops, self-help and change books are many. There are hundreds and thousands. There are numerous and varied philosophies, ideologies, systems, things that promise they will change us because we know that we want to change. Self-help manuals are very popular. And one such book I was looking at recently, um, I'm told it's something of the grandfather of many of these books and it's called The Power of Positive Thinking. Some of you may have come across it or heard it. Um, I didn't know this, it was written in the 50s. It's actually written by a pastor from New York a man named Norman Vincent Peale. And it's a controversial book in in many ways. There are various groups who have got various problems with it. Some have problems because it's actually quite Christian and we are asked to memorise scripture throughout the book. Some don't like it because it seems to sort of subjectivise our faith and it's all about me and achieving my goals and I can do all things through him who strengthens me and verses kind of plucked and applied unhelpfully. And yet one of the helpful things, I think, the links that he makes in this book... It's the idea that we are whole people. The various dimensions of who we are are kind of joined up. If you change something here, then that will have an impact over here. If you change how you think, then, says Norman Peale, that will change how you live. Which actually is true in other places in the New Testament. It's true even for Paul. He will say, set your minds on things above to the Colossians. Change how you think and you process. Change where your, your trajectory, your mind, your heart is, and you will change what your life looks like. So that's true. But it's striking, actually, here in our passage for this morning, Paul says something slightly different. It's not quite that way around. It's rather, be different, live differently, think differently because of who you are now. Because your identity has now changed, you are now a different person, says Paul. Now be that new person. And if last week was looking back at the cross, that objective time, that objective truth, that reality, that that point in the diary that you can see, then Paul this week begins to explore now. Live in the true freedom that you are made for now, says Paul. And he says this, one of the things that will change as we become these new people, as we are who we are now, is what we set our minds upon. And so firstly then, verse 5 to 8, you've got something like a new power for thinking. Let me read those verses again for us and see if you can spot the sort of the black and whiteness, the the two types of thinking possible. There's not much grey in Paul's verses here. It's an either or. Let me read again. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. It's quite striking, isn't it? It's quite harsh. It's very either or. You either set your mind on what the flesh desires, which he says is death, is is hostile to God. It does not submit to his law. It does not please him or else a mind that submits, uh, sets on what the spirit desires, which is life and peace. And, 
And Paul is very blunt. That there is a richness and a diversity within humanity. You get a glimpse of that here in Oxford. You walk down the Cowley Road and you think of the, the different colours, the different restaurants, the different cultures. But when it comes down to it, says Paul, there are only two options. You, you can cut the human race down the middle. It's an either or. Regardless of how good you are, regardless of how generous or kind or polite or decent, if you are not filled with the Spirit of God, then your mind will be anti-God, hostile to him, and therefore your trajectory, Paul says, will be death. I guess there are those for whom we think, well, yes. Now, I look at that person, the proverbial bad guy in society, the, the tabloid targets, the people we're allowed to dislike, and we think, sure, I see that. But then don't you struggle with the good guys? Just the nice people? The, the friends, the people on TV, the people we admire? Is Paul really being fair? Really, Paul, are there only two options here? Either it's mind according to flesh or mind spirit. And we struggle because there are so many nice people around the place, don't we? People who often put Christians in their place, who might be more kind or more generous than us. I've told this story before, but we have some very good friends, some very kind friends who, who do. They pour themselves out for their kids. They pour themselves out for all kinds of people. They're the sort of people you can rely on when you need a babysitter at the last minute. They will just say yes and then work out how they're going to do it. But it's striking. If you speak to them of grace... If you speak to them of, of their need of forgiveness, of them never being good enough for God, then they really struggle with that. They, they don't like grace. They don't like to think that they're not good enough. And suddenly you, you think, ah, okay, now I see something perhaps of why you're nice and good and decent. And to be told that you can't keep the law, as it were, as Paul has been explaining through Romans so far, it, it removes their assurance. It removes their, their standing before a God they're not sure if they believe in. It was a fascinating chat. Grace is offensive for people who are very good. And yet Paul is clear. There are only two options. Maybe it's just helpful to unpack again a little bit of what we mean by the flesh word here. We, we began last week and we were introduced to it there, but it's, it's here in verse 5, it's in verse 6, it's in verse 7, it's verse 8, it's verse 9. What does it mean to live according to the flesh, Paul? What does it mean to have our minds set on what the, the flesh desires, Paul? One of the phrases we use at Magdalen Road sometimes, and it's, I think it's the most helpful, at least for me, is this idea of flesh being the selfish self. The selfish self, it's, it's our default mode that always says, well, I'm at the center of this. Well, what can I get out of this? What's in it for me? What about me in this? It's the knee-jerk reaction that says, I am... I wouldn't put it like this, perhaps, but I am the most important person in my reality. I'm at the heart of things. And we can look nice and we can do good and we can be kind and we can serve in church even. We can be on host teams, please. But the questions can still be there. Well, what's in it for me in this? 
How are these actions going to reflect upon me in this? It's this selfish self rearing its head. I mean, I will go on a host team, but as long as people notice I'm on a host team. You probably won't admit to watching um, the sitcom Friends. Some of you will be too young, and that's a bit scary. Um, And some of you won't admit to it, but I know it's got problems. But back in the day, Friends was very popular. Um, There's a famous and fascinating episode in Friends um, where one of the characters, a lady called Phoebe, um, was wrestling... Is this ringing any bells for anybody? I'm just... Okay. Wrestling with the fact that she was unable to do selfless good deeds. Do you remember that one? A few nods? Thank you, yeah. Oldies unite. Go, boomers. Um, Even if no one knows about it, even if it's a complete secret, we can still feel pride for having done good. And so she's sort of wrestling with this through the episode. There's no real um, outworking at the end of it, no real answer. But Paul says those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires. There's something fleshy in us that means even if we do good, actually it's about us. It makes us proud. But again, notice the order of events that Paul's describing. As we said in one of our self-help books, it's often we think, well, if you think like this, then there will be fruit that grows. And I want to say that is true. Stop your negative thought patterns and you'll begin to live like that. But you notice it is the other way around. So it's not so much, verse 5, in accordance with the Spirit, because you think according to what the Spirit desires, but it's rather think like this. Your mind is set on what the Spirit desires because the Spirit is at work in your life. You have been transformed, and therefore you will begin to think differently. You can think differently because he's, he's changing how you function. He's altering your mindset, your priorities, your attitudes. Here, at least, it's not think differently and then change. But rather, it's because you've changed, you will think differently. Three implications for us of that idea. There'll be more opportunity in home groups to wrestle a bit more with that. But the first thing to say is that God can change people. Isn't that good news? For the Christian, Phoebe of friends is wrong. God is rewiring how we think and what we care about so we can be free to serve, we can be free to do good and not expect payment and not need to be noticed and not feel proud about it. Not thinking, what can I get out of this? But just to do good because God is good and he's changing us to be more like him. We said last week that maybe sometimes we look at our ongoing sin and we doubt that God's plan is working and we think, Lord, is this it, really? I've been a Christian for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, and I'm still wrestling morning by morning with this thing. And yet we said it's not that God's plan has failed. It's simply that God's plan is not yet finished. He is at work. He is still at work. He is still changing you. It's not an overnight zap thing, which in one sense would be great. But actually, it's a lifetime of adventure and growth and trusting him and looking to him and growing in him his spirit at work in us so god can change people even you even me and he is in the business of doing that secondly only god can truly change people 
if we change how we think because the work of the Spirit is in us, then it seems to me there's only so much that, for example, intellectually engaging with people can do. So you, maybe you've been chatting to a neighbor or a friend or a colleague or a family member for years about the Christian faith. And you think, why can't they hear me? Why doesn't this work? But the point is, it's only God who can truly change people. And so it's not just a question of persuasion, which we do need to do, that the Christian faith does make rational sense. It's a question of prayerfully doing it. There were people in Jesus' day who saw the miracles in front of him, and yet they still hated him. They still didn't believe. And we can argue with people till we're blue in the face, but we need God to be at work in them for any real change to come about, for them to change how they think. I remember looking back on student days being up into the early early hours of the morning trying to persuade people relatively prayerlessly but actually it's God who can truly change people and change how we think the third one is just the danger of drifting back I think this just resonates with me in these bodies in this flesh we can still have that tendency to follow the way of the selfish self we we, we we will go on the host team but only if people will notice or say a big thank you or give us croissants beforehand they, those questions do resonate don't they what's in it for me can can this serve me can this satisfy me is this going to be good for me why won't you listen to me why didn't you do what i suggested it's almost like we can be slaves who have been given freedom but prefer to go back to the old way of doing things. It's comfortable. We know where we are. It means we can be in charge. And if that resonates, I guess the question is, well, how? How are we to change then? If we find ourselves constantly drifting, constantly veering back to what, what we were like, rather than who we now are in Christ, then how do we change? Um, Paul goes on 9 to 11 to give us some insight onto that. There's probably more to say, but for now, it's a new power for living. And I just want to very briefly um, overview four aspects of the newness that he unpacks. The first one is that you are part of a new world, verse 9, or as Paul puts it there, a new realm in verse 9. you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, you are but, in the, but you are in the realm of the spirit. Now that you are a Christian, it's as if you live in a new place. You're, you're part of a new land now. You, you have a new passport. You're, you're part of this new realm of the spirit rather than realm of the flesh. And you see, because God's spirit dwells in believers, so they now dwell in the realm of the spirit now. We ought not be under the influence or or in the realm of the land of the flesh, but rather the land of the spirit. It's a place where things are different, a place where you don't do things as you used to do them, a place where you don't think the way that you used to think, or indeed everyone else thinks, but in a way that accords with who you now are in this new realm, this new world. Secondly, there's a new ownership as well in verse 9. You see, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. It's, it's rather like, if you know Romans well, it's right his argument back in chapter 6. We have a new master. We belong to somebody else now. 
Somebody else calls the shots for us now. We do things differently now. And as Paul writes to the Romans, he's not just writing to the kind of the superheroes, the particularly keenies, those who we assume have a special standing, but he says, and this is for all of us, all of us as Christians, we are in Christ, however new, however shaky our faith might feel, however flaky we perhaps feel, and you have God's spirit living in you, and so you belong to him. That is the mark of the authentic Christian, says Paul. You are under new ownership. Live in such a way that shows that. Make the wise decisions. Do you notice, halfway through verse 9, it changes. Paul changes the language slightly, and suddenly we become the spirit of Christ. Did you notice that? So spirit of God, and then into, onto the spirit of Christ. We're in Christ, verse 1, but then we have Christ in us, verse 9. And as he says, Spirit of Christ, he's not saying, I don't think the two are interchangeable, or there's not a sort of jumbling up of the Trinity. It's not that they're interchangeable, they're inseparable. Together, working in perfect unity to make us more like Christ. So we can say the Spirit of God, or indeed the Spirit of Christ, that they're working. He's at work in us. Which means you will be raised. Which means, Paul says, it's not just the stuff of theology, but it's, it's not just teaching on a Sunday, but it's very practical. It's, as you wake up tomorrow morning, as you wake up tomorrow morning, you will be raised because thirdly, verse 10, you have a new life. You have new life in you. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. So do you see, we're still affected by that first sin of Adam and Eve. We, we walk out on God, we think we'll have freedom, we think life will be good, we think we'll have what we want, but in the end it brings death, and so our bodies are subject to death. Our bodies get old, our bodies decay. And yet now as Christ is in us, the one who defeated sin and death, the one who has true resurrection life. So we have life again. It means we can, we can live. It, we'll be in these bodies. We will still struggle. We'll struggle to the, day by, the struggle to the day we die. But bit by bit by bit, we can indeed live. It's as if the future starts now. It seems to me, the hope of the Old Testament believer would always have been this, that God would, bring, would send his spirit and bring life into dead bodies. There are various passages before Jesus that glimpse that reality. But I was reflecting recently on Ezekiel 37. Um, do you remember that passage? Ezekiel, prophet, standing over the, the valley of dry bones. And the Lord is speaking to him about what he will do. And he says this. He says, this is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I'll put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. It's almost as if to dead people, to piles of bones, Paul says, I'm going to bring life. The Lord's brought life by God himself coming to live within them, breathing life into us. So you might not feel like it, but we have life in us now true life, the life that we were made for. Which means finally, 
And I recognise this has been a bit of a whistle-stop tour of these last few verses. You have hope. We have a new hope. There's a definite future because of a definite past action at the cross. You want certainty about the future to come? You want certainty that this is not all there is? Well, look back at the cross. Indeed, look better look back at the empty tomb. And because the tomb was empty, well, if the God who raised Jesus by his spirit lives in you, then you will be raised too. That is not in doubt. And our weak and mortal and puny bodies will decay and die, and they are destined for death. And that will be painful, and we grieve. But Paul says we'll be raised, raised anew. We have a new power for living because a new hope. More on that in the weeks to come. I was reading um, something from the, an old bishop of Durham from 120 years ago, Hanley Mool. He loved these verses. I think what he said about um, this is really important for our times and for us as believers. I think it's a truth we can easily get wrong. Um, but he says this. He says, wonderful is this deep characteristic of the scripture. It is gospel for the body. In Christ, the body is seen to be something. Far from the mere clog or prison or chrysalis of the soul. He says, bodies matter. The resurrection will be physical. Our bodies will be raised. There's a very physical element to these verses. Our mortal bodies will be given life. And so again, just two points now as we chew these things over, perhaps more in um, home group in, week, in the weeks to come. First thing to say is it is physical and there is an earthiness here that we mustn't lose. We must wean ourselves off the lie that we can easily slide into that only, God really only cares about the spiritual stuff and the body stuff he's not that worried about but it's the spiritual, it's really inside what matters. That's where God's real focus is. But I'm just not sure that works with verses like this. Um, Francis Schaeffer, one of my favourite thinkers, says this. He says, Our redemption is not just some far-off transcendental thing relating only to the world of ideas. It has to do with the full person. Just as our future salvation will involve the full redemption and resurrection of the body, so also in this present life our redemption is, is to mean something in terms of our physical bodies. And then he says this, it is the very antithesis of the emphasis on the transcendental in much of modern theology. That is, it's not just about what's inside, but actually bodily theology. We are people, we are whole people, and the gospel is for the whole person. And we can so easily just think that God cares about the inside, the soul, the real us. But our bodies are a key part of who we are. The illustration for that I often use is it, it's a bit like fish and chips. And we think you go to the chippy and you get home and you take off the paper and you've got the chips inside or the fish and chips inside and the paper's incidental, you can recycle that or do something with it. But, but actually, for the Christian, it all matters. The, the paper matters, the body matters, the outside matters as well as what's inside. The second thing, just to chew over as well, is, is this, is that because of God's spirit living in us, we can now please God. I think that's the overarching structure of the verses, if you have a look carefully. Paul's train of thought seems to go there. Those in the realm of the flesh cannot please God, 
however good they are, however kind they are, however admirable. But verse 9, we are not in that realm, and so we can please God. And that means your Monday morning really matters. Whatever it is you spend your time doing, whether you're in the office or the school run or you're changing a nappy or you're studying or you're sleeping, perhaps, we can please God now as believers. Or that Wednesday afternoon meeting or that Friday evening conversation that you're not looking forward to. No, no, we can please God because we are in the realm of the Spirit now. And so this week, Paul says to us, go and live. Go and enjoy the life that Christ has given you. Go and be different. Go and be the person that he's made you to be. Go and trust him. and Go and live for him. And trust that his spirit lives within you. Let me lead us in prayer. Lord, we pray that we might know something afresh of the newness of who we are now in Christ. We pray that we might be those who, who have that new power for thinking, who because we are in Christ, because we are in the realm of the Spirit, because your Spirit lives within us, you might be at work changing the way that we think, the things that we care about, the focus of our lives, the focus of ourself. And we pray that you would give us that new power for living as well. Help us to remember, please, who we are. Help us to, to know that we are in a new realm. Help us to know that we are under new ownership. Help us to know that new life that we have because Christ was raised and sends us his spirit and Help us to know the new hope that we have as well. And Lord, these are not just ideas for a Sunday or a Sunday morning at church. And so we long that these realities would trickle down into the, the everyday of our weeks. Lord, you know our identity amnesia. You know the way in which we forget who we now are in Christ. You know the struggles and the battles that we're still dealing with you know our tendencies you know our ongoing sin and so we long that these verses would not just be ideas but please change us to be more like Jesus please would your spirit be at work in us Lord and if there are any this morning, who, who don't know you, who don't love you, who, who wouldn't call themselves Christians or they're not sure, we, we long that you might be at work. Open eyes to see need of you and draw people to yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.